then immediately we enter into this new section where we go from the mountaintop into the valley. And Elijah comes face to face with the evil and wickedness that is around him, this Baal worship. And Jezebel, the wicked queen who's been driving all of this, threatens his life. And it causes great fear and distress for him. You know, there was this revival that started at the end of last week's section, but as soon as it started, it's already been crushed. Jezebel sees it and she's like, no, we're not having any of that. We're going to worship Baal here, not the Lord, not Yahweh. She threatens Elijah's life and he begins to run. He's, look, he's obviously questioning, okay, is everything I've been striving for pointless? And he's been seeking to see Israel be turned back to the Lord, but now his very life is in danger. And there's a, re, there's a reality that we all face, that evil is real in this world. And we come up against it. We push into it. It threatens us. And I think a big thing that this passage asks is how do we respond when this evil comes to us? What is our response in the face of evil? What is God's response in the face of evil? It's easy to kind of sit within these walls and just kind of say, oh, you know, hey, we love the Lord. Everything's great. But we all know that everything is not great. Everything is not awesome. So what do we do in the midst of the wrongness that is out there, that we see and is done to us? Let me pray, and we're going to dive back into the passage today. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. May the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Christ's name I pray. Okay, this is a weird passage, all right? I had us read the whole thing at the beginning. I'm not actually going to read through it today. Today's sermon is going to look pretty different than normal. It's a weird passage. Like, what in the world is going on here? There seem to be all these moving pieces, and it's like, okay, what is the point the author is actually trying to make? There's a lot of questions that kind of come to our mind. I mean, is, like, what's going on with Elijah fleeing into the wilderness, should he have fled in the first place? And what's going on with this food that God seems to miraculously give him? What's going on on Mount Horeb when he gets there? Why is God not in the earthquake and the fire and the wind, but instead he is in this, this low whisper, this thin silence? What is that? What, the, what in the world are the scriptures talking about when it says that God is in the low whisper? What is that? Is this passage about being still and knowing that God is in control? Is this passage about how to deal with depression and feeling like you've got nothing left? Why does God give these specific tasks to Elijah and it seems pretty violent? What is Elijah doing with Elisha? After all, Elijah complains that he's the only one left and then God seems to give him someone that's going to go with him and Elijah doesn't seem to really care. He's kind of like, what have I done to you? He just seems pretty uninterested in this task that God gives him. So what in the world is going on with the passage that we read? Now, if you read commentaries on this passage, you will encounter, if you read three different commentaries, you'll encounter three different interpretations of what's actually going on. There's just widespread confusion about this. So I want to acknowledge that first 
this morning that there is just not consensus as to what this passage And as I, I uh, teach this morning, my hope is, is to try to unravel what the, the author is trying to communicate to his audience. But I also want to be really clear that there is not consensus. And so I want to do this with humility. I think my understanding of what is going on here is correct, but it could not be. And I'm willing to bet that you've probably heard a sermon on this passage before, and it will probably be different than where it'll be. It's probably different from where we're going to go today. Just want to be upfront with that. I've been heavily influenced by Dr. Dwayne Garrett. He was my Hebrew professor, and the way that he unpacks this passage kind of convinced me of what's actually going on here. Uh, and one of my fears when I preach, I don't ever want to preach in a way that makes all of you out there feel like you have to be some kind of expert to see what's in the pages of Scripture. I don't ever want to preach like that. But sometimes you do encounter things where a little bit of background knowledge is helpful. So I hope that you don't hear me saying today you have to be a Bible scholar or an expert to understand the word, because you don't. But I do hope to draw our eyes to things that perhaps we already know that will maybe illumine us and help us to see what's going on. Okay? So just want to be upfront with what's going on there. All right. I think there's an underlying principle that we need to see and kind of use or exercise when we're reading this principle or this passage. And that principle is biblical illusions. Well, you may be like, okay, what is that? I have no idea what a biblical illusion is. Basically, think of it as a throwback. When you look back to something that came before that influences what's going on now. So, uh, we live in the era of nostalgic movie reboots, do we not? Like, most movies out today are, seem to be based on movies that came out in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Are they not? I mean, you got Star Wars, you've got, I mean, the highest grossing film this year, Top Gun. You know, that was a film from the 80s. You got Jurassic Park, the Scream movies. We, we are in this era where everything is from something that came before. About a year ago, I had the privilege, I don't know, if, that's probably not the right word. I went and saw Ghostbusters Afterlife. Um, <laughs> Now, when I, growing up, I didn't watch Ghostbusters, so I'm not a Ghostbusters guy. I, I think I didn't see even the original Ghostbusters until I was maybe 20 years old. Yeah, I know. Sorry. It's just, just the truth. There's a lot of nerdy things that, I've, that I'm invested in, but Ghostbusters is not one of them. Just never watched it. And that's the only Ghostbusters film I had seen going into Ghostbusters Af Afterlife, which Ghostbusters Afterlife is a sequel slash reboot to the original Ghostbusters movies. It's not the all-girl Ghostbusters movie from a few years ago. So I go into the movie theater, and I watch it, and I walk out, and I'm like, okay, that was fine. That was a fine movie. But if you go read online and see what people say, people who actually love Ghostbusters, they're like, oh, yeah, this had all these, all these callback things. This thing here was this other thing that happened in the original movie. Oh, and when this person said this thing, it's what this person over here said. I mean, I'm like, okay, I guess. Now, you get me on, like, Star Wars and that kind of stuff. Yes, I will... I'll be all about everything that's referencing other things. But Ghostbusters, not so much. But what we find in this passage is basically a reference to something that came before. And if we read this passage without seeing what came before, and read it through a lens that is different from what came before, I think we're going to miss what the author of 1 Kings is actually trying to tell us. So what is that biblical illusion? Well, first off, let me give you this definition or kind of description. Biblical illusions help us to rightly understand what point an author wants his audience to know. I needed to make sure I said that because I underlined it. Okay, what is the biblical illusion? In this passage, 
it is Moses on Mount Sinai. Moses on Mount Sinai. As Dale mentioned, Mount Sinai and Horeb are the same mountain. It even says that in Exodus. So this place that Elijah is going is Mount Sinai. So let me give you the story. We're going to spend a lot of time, probably a third to half of our time, even talking about Moses and what was going on there. So Moses on Mount Sinai, God brought his people out of slavery in Egypt, miraculously brought them into the wilderness to Mount Sinai where he entered into a covenant with them there. While they were in the wilderness, he miraculously provided for them both manna, food, and water from the rock. And when he comes to give them the law on Mount Sinai, there's thunder and earthquakes and great fire on the mountain. It's this idea of the holiness and the judgment of God. This is serious, serious business that God is giving the law. That's in Exodus 19 and 20, this, uh, God giving the law, the, the start of it. And then for the next kind of dozen chapters or so, Moses is up on the mountain fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, and God is giving him the law. Well, what then happens in chapter 32 of Exodus? That's when we get the golden calf incident. So God has given his people this special law that marks them as his special people. And they immediately start rebelling. They're like, we don't know what happened to this Moses guy. He went up on the mountain a while ago, and we haven't seen him since, so we're going to worship this golden calf that Moses or that Aaron has made for us. So immediately, into their special relationship with God, they fall away. And God has every right to wipe them out. And he actually says to Moses, Hey, these people, Moses, that you brought out, he actually says that, which is kind of, it's this funny irony. These people that you brought out of Egypt, they are already committing idolatry. What does Moses do? He intercedes for the people of God. He says, God, please don't destroy them. Please don't destroy them. God relents. He says, I won't destroy them. But I'm not going with them into the promised land. Because if I do, my wrath would be provoked against them, and I would destroy them. Moses then intercedes a second time. He says, God, please don't destroy them. These are your people. What would the Egyptians say? Go with us. What's the point of us going if you aren't there with us? Lord, we need you when we go into this land. Come with us. God relents. He says, yes, I will go with you. So at this point, Moses says, God, I want to see your glory. I want to see your glory. I want to understand who this God is who would go with these wicked people into the land. God says, okay, I'm going to let my glory and my goodness pass by you. Come up here onto the mountain. Because Moses had been going up and down. Come up here onto the mountain. He says, I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock. And I'm going to put my hand on you. And I'm going to let my glory pass by you. He says, but you can't see my glory. Because if you see my glory, you can't live. It'll literally kill you. I'll let my glory pass by you. And I'm going to proclaim my name. But I'll let you see my backside. And so God does this. Moses is in the cleft of the rock. God passes by and he declares who he is. And what does God say when he declares who he is? This is the absolute fundamental nature of God. 
Now, God is whole and complete. You can't necessarily partition things off from him. But when God interacting with us, people, decides to reveal at his core who he is, what is he saying? Let's look. Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. He says this. Now again, when we see Lord in capital letters, I replace that with Yahweh because that was what the original text said. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So this is what God says when he's talking about who he is. Now this this theme of God being merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, gets repeated throughout the Old Testament. Whenever Israel is reflecting on who God is, this is the phrase that comes up the most often. As a matter of fact, when you read the Psalms, you'll be struck at how often there are references to God's steadfast love. Gets repeated over and over again, and Israel clings to this truth. So here's our first point for today. It's not even from our original text. My apologies. That is not normal for those of you who are visiting, but our first point for today, and I I use this because I think it unpacks what's actually going on in our text. Here's our first point. God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God is gracious and merciful, or I should say merciful and gracious, excuse me, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So I want to define these words just a little bit. You can leave this point up on the screen. Mercy is not getting the bad that you deserve. Not getting the bad that you deserve. That's when somebody shows you mercy. It is different from grace. Grace is receiving good that you don't deserve. So mercy is not receiving the bad that you do deserve, and grace is receiving good that you don't deserve. But God is both. He is merciful and gracious. What else? He's slow to anger. He's patient. He's not quickly provoked. You can't just poke at him and he just erupts in a fury. He's long-suffering. And he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Well, what does that mean? I've talked about steadfast love before. It's the Hebrew word chesed. And it's this idea of covenant faithfulness. It's the idea of, I am in a relationship with you, and no matter what, I will cling to it. I will fulfill my end of the bargain. I do not go back on my word. You are special to me. I love you. That is this idea of steadfast love. God is a faithful God. We also get this declaration of the justice side of things. It says that, you know, he will by no means clear the guilty, but visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God is a just God as well. He is holy. But here's the interesting thing. If you look back in verse 6, or sorry, verse 7, the beginning of it, it says that he keeps steadfast love for thousands. That thousands can also be translated a thousand generations. So you have God's mercy and graciousness is extended for a thousand generations, but his displeasure is only three to four generations. God is making a comment about how gracious and merciful he is, even in his description of his holy justice. That is the God that we serve. 
And that is why we gather here in the morning, on Sunday mornings, and we praise him because he is that good God. Okay, so this is the illusion that the author of 1 Kings is talking about. Moses on Sinai experiencing God's glory passing by. Here we have another prophet of God, Elijah, up on a mountain doing some similar things. So let's look at Elijah as prophet. And I have eight parallels that clearly link Elijah to Moses and this mountaintop experience. First off, you have Moses. He flees Egypt. Early in his life, he flees from Pharaoh. And then also, the people of God ultimately flee Egypt as well. Elijah, in verse 3 of chapter 19 in 1 Kings, flees Jezebel. That's the first one. Second one, God's people were sustained in the wilderness with bread and water from the Lord. Elijah is sustained in the wilderness with bread and water from the Lord. That's verse 6. In verse 8, Moses goes up on the mountain for 40 days fasting. What does Elijah do? He fasts 40 days on his way to the mountain. Fourth, you have fire, earthquakes, and calamity on the mountain. Verses 11 and 12 with Elijah, what do we have? Fire, earthquake, wind, general cataclysmic events. Fifth, you have Moses going into the cleft of the rock. Now this is where our English translations fail us, and all the English translations I read actually fail us on this. The Hebrew there is actually, it says that Elijah goes to the cave. He doesn't go to a cave. He goes to the cave. Now, our English translations don't translate it the because it, they don't want to confuse us. People would be like, wait, what, what cave are we talking about? What, what's the cave? Which I wish they would leave that in because that's a question we need to ask. What cave? It's the cleft of the rock. God is going to show Elijah exactly who he is. All right. We also have uh, the sixth thing. Moses pleads twice for something. Elijah also pleads twice. In verse 10 and verse 14. Now, what they plead for is very, very different. But there's two plead, plead, pleads that happen. That doesn't sound right, but we'll, we'll go with it. He pleads twice. Please, there we go. That's the right word. There's no D in that. All right, next we have Moses' face was covered. Moses' face was covered. Why? Because God put his hand on him so he couldn't see his glory. Why is Elijah covering his face when he goes out of the cave? He can't see God and live. And lastly, Moses hears the Lord declare his name. And Elijah also hears something. Something is declared. Now the author of 1 Kings is not coming out immediately and saying, this is exactly what Elijah said. But instead he's using literature to guide the reader, kind of these neat little literary devices to say, oh yeah, Elijah, he's hearing something about who God is. Now, All of this is to say, these are not cute links. They're not like, oh, isn't that nice that we found that in the text. These are clear literary markers that the author is using to draw our attention to say, this is what's happening here in this text. These links are forcing us to read it in light of Exodus 32 to 34. If we ignore Exodus 32 to 34, where we have Israel falling into idolatry and God doing something with the prophet... As the prophet intercedes twice, if we fail to see those connections, we're going to miss the point. So that leads us to the question, what did Elijah hear? 
Now, I don't want to overstep the bounds of Scripture and start assigning to Scripture things it doesn't say. But I think, because of all these parallels, we can say the author is making a point about what Elijah heard. Remember, God was not in these big pictures of judgment, the fire, the wind, the earthquake. It says God was not in those things. But where was he? The low whisper. That's why Elijah covers his face and leaves the cave when that happens. So what did he, he hear? I think he hears Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I think that's the best reading of the text that's going on here. And I think that drives the entire narrative of what is happening to Elijah and in Elijah's life. So here's our main point again. God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, Elijah has a problem. Because he's the prophet of God, and the prophet of God intercedes for God's people as Moses sets as the paradigm. Moses is like the example that all the other prophets follow. But what's Elijah doing? Is he interceding for God's people? No! He's accusing! He's like, God, look at these people! They're trying to kill me! They're all worshipers of Baal! They fall into idolatry! They've rejected your covenant! Get rid of them! He's, a, he's attacking God's people. He is the accuser, not the intercessor. So Elijah is doing the opposite of what God's prophet, the paradigm, should be. The prophet who stands on the mountain. So here's our second point that I'll uh, start unpacking here in a minute. Encountering God's grace ought to lead us to extend grace to others. Encountering God's grace ought to lead us to extend grace to others. Okay, now, you may be looking at it and be like, how did you get there in this text? <laughs> I asked myself that question. But I think it's faithful. I do think it's faithful to what's happening here. Encountering God's grace ought to lead us to extend grace to others. Look at God's response to Elijah. Remember, Elijah is God's prophet, so God listens to what he's saying. God gives him a task of destruction. He says, anoint three people. All of them bring death and destruction. Hazael, as the king of Syria, brings destruction on Israel. Jehu, as the next king of Israel after Ahab's dynasty, wipes out Ahab's dynasty and even kills the king of Judah. He's a violent, wild man. And Elisha also has a prophetic ministry of death. And so we see that in what God says. He says, like, the sword, like, if, if someone escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu's going to get him. If Jehu doesn't get him, Elisha's going to get him. Basically, God responds to Elijah's accusation. He says, okay, okay, I'm going to give you what you asked for. Now, how does this square with God's mercy and grace? You see, God is merciful, but he doesn't just give blanket forgiveness. There's a tension between this mercy and then him not clearing the guilty. He clears those who humble themselves before him. Those who come to him and acknowledge their guilt and acknowledge their need for his mercy. Those are the ones that God clears. He doesn't clear the ones who say, Nah, I got this. I can appease God's wrath on my own. Or there's no wrath at all. This is not saying that God just gives sin a pass, that God is merciful and gracious. 
Because sin is serious. We're actually going to be looking at the seriousness of sin and its nature, how it's insidious. We're going to look at that next week as we look at a little episode in Ahab's life. Sin is serious, but at the same time, God is gracious and merciful and he pours out his wrath on the cross. God is both fully just, pouring out his wrath on the cross, and he's fully merciful and gracious, extending mercy and grace to those who trust in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And he invites all of us to, to respond and to have faith in that and stop trusting in ourselves and our own ability to make God happy or to appease his wrath. But even in his judgment here, we see his mercy. One, we see him saving a remnant, right? He says like, hey, there's 7,000 in Israel, which kind of shows a complete number, this idea of seven. They haven't bowed to Baal, and I'm going to save them. I'll rescue them. And through all of this, he's, a meeting, he's meeting Elijah where he's at. Elijah is like at the end of himself. And God gives him a theophany. God shows him who he is. He's not like, well, my prophet's broken. Let me just kind of, let me go get Elisha. I'll use him. I mean, God didn't need Elijah, but he still uses him. He's like, no, I'm going to meet Elijah where he's at. I'm going to come down and show him who I am. I'm going to declare my name in front of him. What a privilege. Now, how do I get to encountering God's grace ought to lead us to extend grace to others? Let's look in verses 19 to 21. I think this is where it comes out clearly in the call of Elisha. Verse 19, I'm going to read this again. So he, Elijah, departed from there and found Elisha the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the twelfth. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah, so Elijah's kind of already gotten ahead, and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, but what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. <clears throat> Elijah has a very clear, unenthusiastic response to the mission at hand. Does he not? What have I done to you, Elisha? But he got what he wanted. He got exactly what he wanted. God judging Israel for their idolatry and sin. Later on, we're not going to do this today because that would require reading all of First and Second Kings. Elijah never anoints Hazael. Elijah never anoints Jehu. Arguably, based on how we see the story play out later, Elisha is the one who uh, talks with Hazael. He doesn't anoint him. He just talks. And then Elisha sends another prophet to anoint Jehu. And based on how the, the anointing is described there, I think it's safe to say that what Elijah does here is he doesn't anoint Elisha either. He just gives him his cloak. He does pass on his mantle. He makes him his, his assistant. But nowhere does the language say that Elisha now has the spirit of Elijah. That doesn't come until after Elijah leaves. When Elijah is taken up into heaven, he says to Elisha, because Elisha says, hey, I want a double portion of your spirit. And Elijah says, hey, if you get to see me go up into heaven when the Lord takes me, you'll have the double portion. That's what he says. Like, it's, he never is really proactive about this. He doesn't even care that Elisha delays. Elisha's like, hey, let me go say goodbye to my mother and father. Jesus says something about that later on, actually. We may, if we have time, we'll talk about it. But we're running out of time, so we've got to hurry. Okay. Imagine really wanting a specific job or specific promotion, or you college students say you're really wanting the specific grad school 
Then all of a sudden you get the news that you got it. And then you respond with a, eh. It's like, whoa, what happened? Something changed here. Elijah gets what he wants, but something changes. And I think ultimately what the narrative is communicating to us is that Elijah has heard who God really is. When Elijah sees God or interacts with God on the mountain and is reminded of God's graciousness and mercy, the graciousness and mercy that was shown in the story of Moses, then Elijah no longer wants to go through with this ministry of death. And I don't think I'm just making this up. In Jonah, God sends Jonah to a wicked people, Nineveh. Jonah doesn't even want to go. He runs the other way. But when he eventually does end up preaching to Nineveh, and Nineveh repents, Jonah goes up on a mountain, and what's he do? He sits on the mountain, and he wants God to destroy Nineveh, and he's sitting there, and he's like, God, I'm waiting, and I knew this is why I didn't want to come. I didn't want to come preach to them because I knew that you were merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Jonah says that exact same thing as the prophet of God. And the whole point is Jonah is not doing what God wants. And again in Luke 9, we see from Jesus. Jesus goes up on a mountain, has the transfiguration. Who's there? Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah. When Jesus comes down, the people are in disarray and they don't know what to do, like the golden calf. A few, uh, a few verses later, they pass through a, an unbelieving Samaritan village and some of the disciples want to call down fire and what does Jesus do? He rebukes them. He says, no, that's not what I'm here to do. I'm not here to bring death and destruction right now. I'm here to bring reconciliation. And after that is where we get the little part where uh, people are coming to Jesus and saying, I want to follow you in Luke chapter 9. Again, this is almost right after the transfiguration. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, he's not saying that Elisha was unfit for the kingdom of God, but Elisha had a ministry where he was going to pronounce death. And Jesus says, in the new covenant, as my disciples, you are on a mission of life. You are helping people experience the grace of God. Elijah was very unconcerned with Elisha's delay. God was unconcerned with all this delay. He gives this task to Elijah, but it takes a long time for all these things to work themselves out. But the mission of grace that we have is urgent. Grace is urgent. God is long-suffering in his wrath. So here's our second point again. Encountering God's grace ought to lead us to extend grace to others. Okay, I've got two questions for us to ask ourselves to kind of process through this. One, what do you think God is like? What do you think God is like? How do you approach him? Do you view him as a God who's just waiting for you to screw up? He's got a perennial scowl on his face. The other ditch is that he doesn't care. He's indifferent towards your sin. And the passage shows that's not true either. God is not indifferent towards our sin. He's patient with it. Those are two very, very different things. God has mercy and grace in abundance. It's who he is. He doesn't have to manufacture it. It's not like, hmm, am I going to decide to be gracious today? No, he is gracious and merciful. And as we have that right thinking about God, realizing that he's not out to get us, but he's out to reconcile us. That should move us into right behavior with others, move us into graciousness towards them. So the second question, the first one was, what do you think God is like? 
And the second one is, how do you respond to evil and wickedness, both done to you and done to others around you? How do you respond to it? When someone slanders you, ignores you, offends you, hurts you, rejects you, are you patient, merciful, gracious, showing steadfast love? Would someone be able to say about you the same things that God says about himself? When you see oppressed people in unjust systems, does, do you extend grace? Do you walk towards that in mercy? Both wanting to see it righted and fixed, but also wanting to see the people who perpetuate those things be shown the mercy and grace of God, reconciliation with our Heavenly Father. How do you feel about people in the opposition political party? That's a, that's a harder one. When you see the things that they say, left or right, how do you feel about how they are with the Lord? How would you interact with them? A commitment to grace and justice is, or grace and mercy is not a rejection of justice. Instead, it's trusting in God to bring justice on his timetable when he sees fit. All right. Here's a summary statement for today. It kind of wraps up all this. Receive grace, give grace. Receive grace, give grace. Receive the grace of God. See who he is. And then allow that reception of that grace to move you to give it to others. God's people want to see God's mission of mercy go forward. They don't delay in it. We don't want to see his wrath just be poured out on everybody. We want God to be patient and say, Lord, help us to share your grace with them. And Lord, we trust that your justice will be brought someday. Evil will not go unpunished. We don't overlook evil. We endure and we suffer through it. And we bring grace to bear on it. Because that's God's heart. He wants reconciliation with the people of this world. So when we see what he's like, it ought to push us to have that same heart towards others. May we receive grace and give grace. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you are gracious to us. We thank you that you are merciful, that you are slow to anger and you are abounding in steadfast love. Father, may we be gracious and merciful to others. May we see clearly your grace and mercy to us. May we see clearly enough and be transformed in order to give it to others. Help us to not seek vengeance, but to seek mercy. pray all this in Jesus' name.